0: Today, despite international condemnation, is the invasion of Ukraine by Russia illegal? Which documents, which legal obligations, have Russia flouted by invading Ukraine? And have the actions of the Russian Federation broken a law by which the UN system functions and seeks to uphold? I'm Kieran O'Meara, and you're listening to The Polit Podcast. Too late, my dear colleagues, to speak about de-escalation. Too late. The Russian president declared the war on the record. Should I play the video of your president, ambassador? Shall I do that right now? Or you can confirm it. Do not interrupt me, please. Thank you. Then don't ask me questions when you are speaking. Proceed with, your, proceed with your state. Anyway, you declared the war. It is the responsibility of this body to stop the war. So I call on every one of you to do everything possible to stop the war. This isn't called a war, this is called a special military operation in the Donbas. Relinquish your duties as a chair. Condemn the aggression that you launch on my people. There is no purgatory for war criminals. They go straight to hell, ambassador. I wanted to say, wanted to say in conclusion that we aren't being aggressive against the Ukrainian people, but against the junta that is in power in Kiev. The Russian Federation is now past the initial stages of its widespread military invasion of Ukraine. This began just days after Russian sovereign recognition of the contested Donetsk and the Hansk regions. Following months of tensions, the claims that Russian foreign policy would not involve the invasion of another sovereign state's territory has been revealed for what it is, a cold falsehood. This violates the very quality that defines the manifestation of international society, and that is the common obligation to international law by its members, given their mutual condition of international anarchy. As international law has been breached, reactive procedure within the institutions of global governance have been set in motion. This has been seen no more so than in the United Nations, the UN, the very symbolic institution of international society. At its Institutional Center, the UN Security Council held four urgent meetings and the General Assembly an emergency special session in the initial week of the invasion alone. The second Security Council meeting on February 24th was marred when Russian forces invaded Ukrainian sovereign territory under the label of a special military operation just minutes into the session. With emotional rhetoric at the fore, the meeting closed with Nabenzia claiming that the root of today's crisis around Ukraine is Ukraine itself, whilst falsely accusing Ukraine of a Russophobic genocide in the Donbass, and Kislytsia, the Ukrainian representative, contesting the legitimacy of the Russian seat on the Security Council. The 3rd, February 25th, saw draft resolution s 2022 vetoed by the Russian Federation, 11 votes were cast in favor of the resolution, and three members abstained, China, India, and the UAE. Only Russia voted against the proposal, thus vetoing the draft resolution, which is a privilege that it holds as a permanent member of the Security Council. On February 27th, the Security Council voted to request an emergency special session of the General Assembly to consider the draft resolution, following a written request from the Ukrainian delegation. This is provided for under the first section of the General Assembly Resolution 3775, Uniting for Peace, in which the General Assembly can decide whether or not to overturn a veto in the Security Council and subsequently implement the previously undermined resolution as one of its own in the name of peace. With the emergency special session having come to a head on March 2nd, the draft resolution condemning Russian aggression against Ukraine passed with 141 affirmative votes to 5, with 35 abstentions, cementing international solidarity and condemnation for the invasion. Nonetheless, General Assembly resolutions are not legally binding. Be that as it may, despite international condemnation, is the invasion of Ukraine illegal? Have the actions of the Russian Federation broken the law by which the UN system functions and seeks to uphold? Even for scholars of international politics, the UN system could be mind-boggling and complicated. The focus of this piece will be to provide two services to the listener. Primarily, this exploration intends to clear the fog of confusion that usually clusters around those references to the legality of certain actions, explaining how the invasion has breached international law in an easily comprehensible manner. Therefore, this episode seeks to offer an explanatory source to the listener, which can be used to aid one's grasp of the legality of the conflict as the crisis unfolds. As such, it aims to clarify why many consider the Russian invasion of Ukraine to be illegitimate by reference to those commonly cited documents of the international legal order itself. In order to achieve its dual function, this episode will centre its focus on the legality of Russia's invasion by reference to the UN Charter, the UN's principal legal document, alongside a brief note on the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances. In this, each article that has been seen widely to be of importance and has been breached will be unpacked and contextualized. This is gonna permit the listener a grasp of how and why these particular authoritative fragments have a role to play in the present conflict and the diplomacy that comprises its shadow. Given the chiefly explanatory nature of this particular episode, a certain critical evaluation of the UN system as a whole will be notably absent. Nonetheless, This is not to be taken as if the UN system has not gone critically unexamined. Actually, quite the opposite. As fascinating and significant to a broad grasp of the UN system as these critiques are, their discussion falls outside the scope of this exploration and its objectives, as does a wider critique of international legal abuses by Western states such as the US, the UK, Australia, or even international bodies like the EU or the African Union. Today, in order to achieve such objectives, This episode will unpack articles from both the UN Charter and the 1994 Budapest Memorandum that are applicable to this case. These fragments have been selected as they are seemingly the two most cited documents in diplomatic discourse on the issue thus far. This permits a greater understanding of both the illegality and the discourse unfolding at the UN concerning the Russian use of force. Understanding should not be for diplomats and scholars alone, nor would they have it such a way, but accessible to all. Consequently, I have divided the relevant documents into two sections to be discussed in turn. Firstly, the articles of the UN Charter that have recurring pertinence to the current situation will undergo examination, precisely because it's through the Charter that the legality of Russia's actions will be weighed against. Following this, the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances shall then briefly take the spotlight, and finally, this episode will come to a close with some concluding remarks. Let's begin. Signed in 1945, the Charter is the UN's founding constitutional document. As in the case of any constitutional document, its function is to lay out the most fundamental principles of the organisation, its institutional organs, bureaucratic and amendment processes, procedures, alongside those obligations of signatory member states, who by virtue of becoming members, approve of and seek to uphold its contents. Not only is the Charter the founding document of the UN, but it reinforces and seeks to legitimate the self-determining sovereignty that all states are to hold Equally. Such a quality truly makes it the normative, symbolic, and textual crystallization of international society and the contemporary rules based international order. In the words of scholar Ramesh Thakur, the Charter sets out the principles that the UN must defend and the values it must uphold. Consequently, with this as the common interpretation, it's primarily against the Charter that actions of belligerent states are evaluated. The articles of the UN Charter that we're going to discuss here are those that are relevant to the current Ukrainian crisis in their citation by diplomats and scholarly commentators alike. The hope is that by examining these articles, this episode may be able to explain why Russia's action constitutes a violation of their obligations that are entailed in the contents of the articles. The Charter is comprised of 111 articles, we're not going to do all of them. Of these, only 13 will be examined, the 13 that have been continually cited in the diplomatic dialogue surrounding the events of the invasion. In each case, what we're going to do is present an article, I'm going to recite its applicable clauses, not all of them, just the applicable ones, and then discuss the relevance to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ensuing this, a secondary discussion of the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances is then going to be engaged with, so we can comprehend the wider diplomatic discourse to a greater extent. Okay, Article 1. The first article of the Charter sets out the purposes of the UN. No single article nor clause uniquely summarises the function of the UN as a supranational organisation more so than Article 1, Paragraph 1. Here, the raison d'etre of the organisation is clearly disclosed, and that is to maintain international peace and security, and to that end, take effective collective measures for the prevention and removal of threats to the peace. In reference to the clauses that have been broken in Article 1, Russia stands accused by much of the family of nations as having undermined all of them, In the first instance, its invasion of Ukraine constitutes an act of aggression that the Russian Federation then clearly sought to hamper the role of the UN in addressing. Such a hampering took place through the mechanism of its veto in the Security Council, effectively blocking the UN from attending to the conflict and reaffirming the Ukrainian right to sovereign self-determination. In doing so, the claim has been made that Russia has facilitated the functional paralysis of the organization from achieving its aim of collective peace and security. This inadvertently implies that the aspiration to conscious coordination that allows for the society of states to be a self-governing political entity is thrown into disarray. In other words, the harmonization of action to common ends is foreclosed and the most fundamental principles of the UN system and global governance, let alone international law, have been violated. Article 2, Guiding Principles for UN Members. I'd just like to read out a couple of bits of Article 2 verbatim. The organisation and its members in pursuit of the purposes stated in Article 1 shall act in accordance with the following principles. 1. The organisation is based on the principle of the sovereign equality of all its members. 2. All members, in order to ensure all of them... The right and benefits resulting from membership shall fulfil in good faith the obligations assumed by them in accordance with the present Charter. 3. All members shall settle their international disputes by peaceful means, in such a manner that international peace and security and justice are not endangered. 4. And this is the most significant. (laughs) All members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations. Five. All members shall give the United Nations every assistance in any action it takes in accordance with the present Charter, and refrain from giving assistance to any state against which the UN is taking preventative or enforcement action. Okay, if Article 1 of the Charter lays out the functions of the UN, Article 2 describes its foundational norms and principles that member states have the legal responsibility to uphold. The most salient of these is Clause 4 – by which the aggressive threat or use of force is outlawed and a principle of non-intervention reinforced. By invading Ukraine, the Russian Federation has flouted four of the five clauses I've just read out. Primarily, Russia has neglected its obligation to recognize the sovereign equality of its fellow member state Ukraine, and that snubs clauses one and two. Alongside this, the Russian regime has chosen to wage an aggressive war through the use of force against Ukrainian territorial integrity and political independence, endangering international peace and security. And that slights both paragraphs 3 and 4. Equally, it can also be added that should action by the UN be taken against Russia... Belarus will then have undermined its obligations as laid out in Clause 5, given its current status as an active bellicose ally of Russia. It must be said that it's often remarked that Articles 2 and 51, discussed later, are directly contradictory. If the use of force is outlawed by Article 2, paragraph 4, a member state is unable to engage in forceful self-defence under Article 51 without in some way renegading from the most important and significant obligations the Charter compels, meaning intervention can only be justified in the most particular and narrowly defined circumstances. Such a contradiction and narrowly defined circumstances will no doubt be highlighted by the Russian permanent representative ahead in order to present a narrative justification for the invasion in Ventu as Russia's claim to self-defence is further interrogated. Article 4 Admission to membership. During the emergency sessions, Representative Kislytsia of Ukraine raised the question of the Russian Federation's membership to the supranational organization as a whole. With the passing of the Union of the Soviet Socialist Republics, USSR, in 1991, the Russian Federation became the inheriting state of the USSR's membership to the UN, including its permanent seat on the Security Council and all other organs of the UN system. Kislytsia highlights that the process set out in Clause 2 of Article 4 did not take place, whereby the admission of any such state to membership in the UN will be affected by a decision of the General Assembly upon recommendation of the Security Council. This did not take place, but simply a letter was received by the Secretary-General from the then Russian President Boris Yeltsin informing him of the Russian Federation's intent to take up the position of the USSR. The intention here is therefore to rhetorically cast doubt on the legitimacy of the Russian Federation's membership and equally its status as a peace-loving state. If the UN chose to act on Kislytsky's assertion, it would face a constitutional and legal crisis the likes of which it has yet seen, not yet having faced such a challenge. Article 6, The Expulsion of a State In extension to the question raised by the iteration of Article 4, it has been suggested by some that the Russian Federation should have its permanent seat on the Security Council removed, following its intent to disturb the UN's capability to pursue peace. Although there has been little immediate published academic debate on the matter, it must be stated that there is no mention in the Charter of removing a permanent member of the Security Council. Ultimately, this reveals the partially limited and restricted character of the Charter, exposed through such a salient lacuna with this absence. Nonetheless, Article 6 lays out the process for expelling a member from the organisation as a whole. This has never been triggered and would be expected to be vetoed by the Russian Federation, as is their right under Article 27.3. Most speculative routes for the circumnavigation would run up against political or legal obstacles, and as such the Ukrainian claim should be treated as a narrative influencing interjection to emphasize the historical pattern of Russian legal abuses. Article 23 The composition of the Security Council. Much as in the discussion of Articles 4 and 6 above, Article 23 has been rhetorically appealed to by Ambassador Kislytsia on a number of occasions during the emergency sessions. The purpose of this exercise has simply been to raise uncertainty over the Russian Federation's position as a permanent member of the Security Council, given that it's not the USSR and that the process entailed in Article 4 for the Russian Federation's membership is yet to be undertaken. Just how much credence one wishes to lend to such an argument varies, but the rhetorical and normative capacity of Kislytsia's claim can't be denied to have had some impact on the international discourse to some extent. Effectively, because permanent membership was afforded in the Charter to the USSR, and as the Russian Federation is not the USSR and did not go through the proper channel to join the United Nations, according to Article 4 and Article 6, we can cast doubt on their right to a permanent seat in the Security Council, at least rhetorically. Article 25, the binding nature of Security Council resolutions. The members of the United Nations agree to accept and carry out decisions of the Security Council in accordance with the present Charter. As the primary responsibility of the Security Council is to ensure and maintain international peace and security, the Charter makes it necessitous for member states to adhere to Security Council resolutions. Consequently, Article 25 is commonly interpreted as certifying the legal and binding nature of such resolutions. In this regard, the Russian invasion of Ukraine breaks international law by violating Resolution 2202, and therefore Article 25." Let's talk about 2202. <laughs> resolution 2202 was unanimously adopted, unanimously adopted in 2015, with all 15 members of the Council voting in favour of its implementation. This resolution holds broad significance, concerning itself only with the Ukrainian crisis that came as a result of the 2014 Revolution of Dignity and the annexation of Crimea. In its responsibilities to uphold both Article 25 of the Charter and the wider convention that agreements one makes must be kept, Pacta and Savanda, the Russian Federation is breaching its legal obligations in a threefold manner with regards to Security Council Resolution 2202. Firstly, the resolution reiterated that all signatories reaffirm full respect for the sovereignty, independence, and territorial integrity of Ukraine. Secondly, Although Russian diplomats now claim to have not been participating as a signatory uh, with the 2015 Minsk agreements, the Russian Federation has very clearly signed an obligation to withdraw all armed formations, military equipment, as well as mercenaries from the territory of Ukraine, under the annex of this legally binding agreement. And lastly, as part of the resolution... Putin himself is listed alongside other world leaders as personally reiterating their full respect for the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Ukraine, by which, quote, they firmly believe that there is no alternative to an exclusively peaceful settlement. It subsequently appears that there has been a five-pronged violation by Russia in this regard alone. By the use of such force against Ukraine, the Russian Federation has disregarded a legally binding resolution that it willingly agreed to uphold in the manner discussed just now. 1. In doing so, such action thus flouts Article 25 of the Charter, renegading on its legal obligations to a load-bearing pillar of international law. 2. And finally, in defying such responsibility and ignoring their own active commitments to Resolution two two o two, the Russian Federation has diluted the very sanctity of the legal convention that states are obliged to uphold the agreements that they willingly have a hand in forging. Three forty five. <laughs> As such, Russia has chosen to overturn and disrupt the common norms and law of international society. Article twenty seven. Voting procedure in the Security Council. I'd like to just take a moment to read this out verbatim because it's really important. 27, Clause 1. Each member state of the Security Council shall have one vote. Clause 2. Decisions of the Security Council on procedural matters shall be made by an affirmative vote of nine members. There are 15 in total. Clause 3. Decisions of the Security Council on all other matters should be made by an affirmative vote of nine members, including the concurring votes of the permanent members, provided that in decisions under Chapter 6 and under Paragraph 3 of Article 52, a party to a dispute shall abstain from voting." Article 27 explicates the voting procedure of the Security Council. In its third clause, provision is made for permanent members to trigger their technical, or as I like to say negative, veto power. The veto power of the permanent members can be categorised as negative precisely because there is no clause providing for a veto affirmatively, as a clear mechanism of use. There's not a clause which says that, and each permanent member can trigger a veto. (laughs) Rather, a resolution may be blocked by simply preventing the permanent members from voting unanimously, even if all 14 other members of the Security Council are united. Subsequently, the output of the body whose function it is to ensure international peace and security is greatly susceptible. to the whims of national interest amongst its permanent members. This has led to accusation and widespread commentary that the veto stymised the practice of collective justice in international society in the name of power politics, and so should be amended to mirror the norms of the contemporary era. In this case, the draft resolution calling for Russian aggression in Ukraine to be brought to an end was vetoed by Russia on February 25th. This usurped not only the function of the Council, and that of the UN broadly, as set out in Article 1, Paragraph 1, but equally contravened the final section of Article 27.3, that a party to a dispute shall abstain from voting. Instead, Russia vetoed the draft resolution, contravening its responsibilities whilst sitting as President of the Council, no less." This is a flagrant legal abuse and mockery of the UN system, which, turn, which in turn undermines its efficacy as a mechanism of international justice. Such a violation of the Charter was consequently sought to be circumnavigated through appeal to the General Assembly under Resolution 3775 Uniting for Peace – As passage of the draft resolution to the General Assembly under that resolution is a procedural matter, the process for which this is accounted for within Article 27.2, no unanimity of the permanent members was required. Nice, simple. The issue passed to the General Assembly with 11 votes in favour, three abstentions, and Russia alone in its resistance once again. However, as I've already stated, although significant in their own modality, General Assembly resolutions are only recommendations, they're not legally binding, and this means they lack not only the weight of binding international law, but, as in the specific case of 3775 Uniting for Peace, are therefore unable to reinforce collective security, making it both politically and legally contentious. Article 33 – The Peaceful Settlements of Disputes It's been claimed that both Russian aggression and its resultant action to block the draft resolution in the Security Council go some way to undermine the attempt at achieving a peaceful outcome to the crisis. This goes against Article 33, which obliges states to peacefully settle disputes by way of negotiation and judicial settlement prior to engaging in the use of force. Simply put, no such avenue was taken prior to Russia's invasion. Ultimately, this will be the long-standing goal of the UN until any conclusion to the conflict arises, and that is to facilitate a peaceful settlement of dispute. And to those who argue that Putin, in fact, did try to get a peaceful settlement of dispute, simply laying out terms that cannot be taken by your interlocutor is not an illustration of this. Article 36, Recommendations for Adjustment by the Security Council. The veto draft resolution is significant precisely because of its relation to Article 36. The provisions of the draft resolution sought to recommend such methods of adjustment to the current conflict. The draft resolution S2022155 explicitly states that the Russian Federation is to, quote, immediately cease its use of force against Ukraine and immediately, completely, and unconditionally withdraw all of its military forces from the territory of Ukraine within its internationally recognised borders, end quote. And that would include the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. In doing so, it can't be claimed that the Security Council has neglected its responsibility to Articles 33 nor 36. Russia, however, through its use of the veto, can be said to have obstructed the Council from adhering to such responsibility, and as such the Security Council from performing its function under the Charter. Article 39. The Security Council May Determine Aggression With the right to determine and recommend appropriate procedures for peaceful de-escalation, Article 39 begins the seventh chapter of the Charter, in which the process for condoning intervention as a mechanism of collective security is expounded. The vetoed draft resolution S two o two two one five five sets out clearly that, with the right afforded to the Security Council through Article thirty nine, the Russian Federation's actions against Ukraine can only be categorised as a threat to peace and, consequently, as an act of aggression. As an act of aggression that undermines its obligations to Article two, Clause four of the Charter, effectively, undermining its obligations to non-intervention. And the non-use of force. Although the Russian Federation do not contest the suitability of the Security Council to hold such a right, their claim is that this contradicts Article 51, which we're about to discuss, with their actions narratively constructed as defensive. Articles 41 and 42, The Interventionary Power of the Security Council. The content of Articles 41 and 42 constitutes the gravitas of the Charter's seventh chapter. In these two articles, the powers of the Security Council to apply measures in the name of international peace and security are presented. There is indeed a precedent for this, having been used several times in the last three decades, and especially under the doctrine of the Responsibility to Protect. Article 41 is the basis for UN action that does not entail armed force, permitting the formation of sanctions committees and thus severe economic embargoes that we saw during the first Gulf War and the Balkan Wars of the 1990s. Article 42 provides equally for the UN to impose the use of armed force for the maintenance of international security and to give effect to its past decisions, as in the case of the 2011 intervention in Libya, so to enforce a ceasefire. As legal scholars contend, a Security Council resolution is considered to be a Chapter 7 resolution only if it explicitly determines that a situation under consideration constitutes a threat to the peace as an act of aggression and or explicitly or implicitly states that the Council is acting under Chapter 7. The vetoed resolution makes no explicit reference to Chapter 7, that's for certain, but it does contend that Russia's actions constitute a use of aggression that violates the Charter. Resultantly, although the extent to which the draft resolution entails action that could be considered a mode of intervention is debatable, it makes neither implicit nor explicit reference to enforceable measures. As such, Article 41 and Article 42 would not be and have not been triggered with the passing of this resolution. Nevertheless, if aggression were to continue and the situation deteriorate at a greater humanitarian expense... Both Articles 41 and 42 could emerge in the broader diplomatic and legal dialogue, as in past cases. However, that would still come up against the problem of the Russian veto in the Security Council. Article 51, the right to national self-defense. I would like to uh, read this out verbatim. Nothing in the present charter shall impair the inherent right of individual or collective self-defense if an armed attack occurs against a member of the United Nations, until the Security Council has taken measures necessary to maintain international peace and security. Measures taken by members in the exercise of this right of self-defence shall be immediately reported to the Security Council and shall not in any way affect the authority and responsibility of the Security Council under the present Charter to take at any time such action as it deems necessary in order to maintain or restore international peace and security. The current Russian diplomatic defence for the invasion of Ukraine rests with Article 51 of the Charter. The Benzia throughout several of the emergency sessions in the General Assembly and Security Council, has commented on the precedence of Article 51 to the Russian case, making it the prime legal defence of the Russian diplomatic corps. Article 51 entitles any member state to individual or collective self-defence until measures are taken for peace. This creates a central contradiction with the prohibition of the use of force and reinforcement of non intervention essued out in Article two four. Russia is entitled to self defense under the Charter. That is absolutely not up for debate. This being said, it's been acknowledged by a number of legal scholars that the crucial quality of Article fifty one lies in the phrasing or lies in the wording of the phrase armed attack. Following precedent, the imminence of an attack must be so overt that defensive action is required in the name of existential sovereign self preservation. In turn, this delegitimates the use of force in regards to a perceived threat, lacking the factual clarity and evidence of a truly existential hazard. Therefore, in order to claim that a state is acting in step with Article 51, Both support and imminent bellicosity is required to be active as opposed to passive, otherwise widening the scope of legitimate self-defence risks like a literal full and total erosion of the Charter's purpose (laughs) and principles. And as a result, such a widening should accordingly be avoided for the sake of the international legal order itself, and applicable to all. How does this relate to the current crisis in Ukraine? There have been no threats of force against Russia from Ukraine, nor from NATO member states, being a defensive alliance. In this case, there is a distinct lack of clarity, imminence, and active bellicosity towards Russia from Ukraine. Although some may claim that Article 51 entitles Donetsk and Luhansk to the legitimate self-defence, this is simply not so. Neither Donetsk and Luhansk are recognised sovereign states on any legal or widespread basis, not being UN member states and subsequently not provided for in international law. As such, to recognise either the Donetsk or Luhansk people's republics is to infringe upon the sovereignty of Ukraine, and that undermines just about every article we've discussed so far. Consequently. Article 51 does not apply in this case, except to Ukraine in their self-defence against clear aggression from the Russian Federation that is an armed attack and commonly perceived as such. So the focus of this current episode will now shift its attention from the UN Charter to a very brief discussion of the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances unpacking this commonly cited agreement in regards to the Russian invasion so to provide a greater sense of clarity and understanding following the objectives of this episode as a whole. Okay, so the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances, 1994. I would like to quote the memorandum. Ukraine, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, and the United States of America, taking into account the commitment of Ukraine to eliminate all nuclear weapons from its territory within a specified period of time, 1. Reaffirm their commitment to Ukraine, to respect the independence and sovereignty and the existing borders of Ukraine. 2 reaffirm their obligation to refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine, and that none of their weapons will ever be used against Ukraine except in self-defense or otherwise in accordance with the Charter of the United Nations. So signed at the December 1994 Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe conference in Budapest the Budapest memorandum on security assurances details a milestone for Russia-Ukraine relations in the post-Cold War era in return for surrendering their stockpile of nuclear weapons to the Russian Federation and thereby engaging with the international program of nuclear non-proliferation Ukraine was to receive recognition of sovereignty over existing borders and an obligation to refrain from the use of force, except such right ensured by Article 51 of the Charter. The first clause of the memorandum was breached in 2014 with the February Revolution of Dignity, and the annexation of the Crimean Peninsula, whereby the limitations of the memorandum were revealed to be unable to account for the problem in status of Russian military forces in a Ukrainian region that had been annexed with a referendum. Hence, in regards to the conflict in 2022, the memorandum can be very clearly to have been wholly undermined with the recognition of Ukrainian sovereignty renegaded on and the aggressive use of force employed. Although the assertion that Russian aggression has breached the Budapest Memorandum is salient, it really must be declared that the Budapest Memorandum is not legally binding. Despite the claims of a number of commentators, the purpose of the Memorandum was to provide a reaffirmation of commitment to certain security assurances. Even though the document cites the UN Charter at a number of points as part of such a reaffirmation, This does not make it an international legal treaty. In such a regard, Moscow's transgression of the memorandum may not be a strict legal infringement, but it does represent a landmark in the breakdown of international order and the very worth of security assurances broadly. Subsequently, the Budapest Memorandum as a phenomenon in itself has frequently been mentioned at the emergency sessions of the UN. Nevertheless, for the sake of understanding and clarity, it should absolutely not be forgotten that breaking the Budapest Memorandum is not a violation of international law and should only contribute to evidencing the breakdown in the norms underpinning international order. The breach of the Budapest Memorandum is an erosion of a propensity towards the cordial and trusted relations between states, as opposed to a contravention of a binding legal code. As such, Breaking the Budapest Memorandum is not a significant enough source to single-handedly claim the Russian invasion of Ukraine is illegal. To do so would be to misunderstand the distinction between laws and assurances. Some final thoughts. In the first week of the conflict, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees have published that a million refugees fled Ukraine the most rapid exodus of the contemporary era that seems to be expanding in magnitude with every passing moment. Usually, such a claim involving the phrase, with every passing moment, is made as a rhetorical device. This is not the case. Some five days later, just 12 days into the invasion as a whole, this already vast figure doubled to over 2 million. Such a humanitarian crisis has been the subject of several Security Council sessions since the GA voted to denounce the Russian invasion. In these sessions, Kislytsia and Benzia have continued to fiercely debate the legality of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, using the language of and references to the documents that we've discussed in this episode, and reiterating their arguments. The purpose of this episode was to elucidate and explain The chief pair of documents that have been raised in the wider diplomatic discourse concerning the legality of the Russian invasion. Such discourse is significant because it forms the basis of the global politics that we are all connected to in some way, and as such should be made accessible for any and all interested in understanding its character to a greater extent. This it must be said is an endeavour I am not alone in wishing to promote. In the words of Kevin Blore from his upcoming work Understanding Global Politics, my hope with this piece has been that anyone with the slightest curiosity about the forces that shape the world around them will hopefully take away something valuable from these pages, and that as far as the will to understand global politics goes, there will never be a better time than the present. In the examination of the UN Charter and the 1994 Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances, it can clearly be stated that the Russian Federation and its Belarusian stalwart have committed a twofold assault on the rules-based international order. In the first sense, it's nothing but abundantly clear that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is illegal. As this episode has shown, Russia's actions contravene a plethora of both legally binding resolutions and articles within the UN Charter – and that is a linchpin of obligatory international law that it has a very clear and concrete lawful duty to uphold. Although Russia has both undermined and breached the Budapest Memorandum on Security Assurances also, it's been emphasised that this was never a legally binding treaty, and so does not testify in isolation to the legal illegitimacy of Russia's aggression. It does, however, demonstrate the breakdown in normative reciprocity within international society. In discussing the collapse of the norms that underpin international society, this brings us to the secondary manner in which we can conclude that Russia's use of force has assaulted the rules-based international order. The Russian Federation have sought only to hamper the ability of the UN system to achieve its chief function of maintaining international peace and security. Consequently, not only has the Russian Federation very clearly violated binding international law with their invasion, but have added insult to injury by abusing the legal word of the Charter in bad faith, such as in the case of Articles 51 or 27.3, seeking to undermine the very principles upon which the Charter and the UN were forged to maintain. This isn't to suggest that other states haven't done the same thing. That is certainly not the case. (laughs) The United States of America, United Kingdom, Australia, Western States generally, even the African Union, have had a tendency to intervene and to undermine the rules-based international order for their own interest. The purpose of this piece was to explain how that has been done by Russia in this scenario. Frankly, following the thought of the former UN peacekeeper and academic Martin Duffy, Quote, the UN has a perfect right to expect the highest level of integrity from all its members, and especially from the P5. In wholly undermining that very integrity, Russia has not only broken international law in the most flagrant manner, but has devalued the very system that underpins international society that of its common interests, its common norms, its common values, laws, and practices that bind states in a social relation with one another. So you've been listening to me, Kieran O'Meara, on the illegality of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how to understand it. Please, please, please like, share, subscribe and follow. Just click on that little subscribe or follow button. (laughs) Please, please, please. It would mean the absolute world to me. And please go and find us on social media as well. You're able to find us on TikTok, on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram and YouTube as well. And if you haven't already done so, please go check out the website. This particular episode was taken from an article that I wrote for e-International Relations called Understanding the Illegality of Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. There will be a link in the description box. And also you'll be able to find a first draft of that on the Polit website where everything has citations and everything is referenced alongside parts that didn't become elements of the episode. So please go check that out. And remember, when you're in the mood for a think, thinkpolit at www.thinkpolit.com. Thank you. See you next week.